Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. Well, I have to probably do some editing here, Peter. <laughs> There's an old riddle that goes, how far can a bear run into the woods? The answer? Halfway. Then it's running out of the woods. Well, we've just passed the halfway mark in 2021, which means that now is the time to evaluate the first half of the year, where we have come, how the markets have performed, and how does that match up with expectations from the start of the year? At the halfway point, many equity markets have posted strong gains, while bond market performance has been much more lackluster, if not outright disappointing. Treasury yields shot up in the first quarter beyond consensus expectations, but have retraced about half of that move by mid-year. What does that say about the future of inflation expectations? And on inflation itself, the debate of the year, just what the heck is transitory? And lastly, as we are now more than halfway through the year, our attention is starting to turn to what 2022 might look like. Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged, Mid-Year Edition. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. I'm your host, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist at Manulife Investment Management. And joining me today are my colleagues, Kevin Hedlund and Makan Nia. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us, Philip. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and on this episode of Investments Unplugged, we're gonna take a look back on what has transpired through the first half of the year and provide our outlook for what we think the remainder of 2021 is going to hold and maybe a little bit of insight into our early thoughts on 2022. But before we get too deep into that, I just want to highlight some of the economic growth that we've seen in Canada and the United States. And in general, guys, at the beginning of the year, we laid out our thesis, our rapid reopen thesis to the marketplace in that we felt as the vaccines became more and more available, uh, the cases of COVID would fall and economies would open up. Now, we've seen that in full force in the United States, with many states being fully open. I would say the majority of the United States has perhaps returned to fully open. Canada, we're moving along in that direction and, and various areas of Europe likewise. Uh, it, it seems that we are moving further and further away from COVID to a point where it's no longer going to be the dominant factor of our day-to-day movements. We're seeing that result in stronger economic growth. So in the United States, for example, the first quarter GDP growth rate on a quarter over quarter basis annualized came in at 6.4%, so quite strong. In Canada, it was 5.6%, and expectations are for that Q2 is going to be as strong, if not even perhaps stronger. It's likely to moderate through the year, but nonetheless, 2021 is vastly improved over 2020, and I would argue 2021 is a much better environment than where we were in 2019 on, on a number of different fronts. Obviously, the equity markets, it's most evident. Then lastly, I guess I would just touch on the labor market, both in Canada and the United States. We're seeing pretty strong rebound. Like in the US, we've recovered more than half of the 22 million jobs that were lost in March and April of 2020 because of the COVID lockdowns. And I think we're on our way to recover most of the jobs, if not all the jobs, before the end of 2022. So rapid reopen, yes. What that meant for equity markets was a pretty positive environment 
for 2021. Now, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, but Kevin, you're going to cover off the equity environment and, and what we've seen so far this year, and then we'll discuss where we are. So how was the first half of the year from the equity perspective? Yeah, thanks, Philip. And I, I think, you know, what you've hit on, you know, kind of wrapper reopen thesis that we had and, you know, the, the speed at which it reopens and, and the, the impact on, on equities and fixed income and the economy it can, of course, be debated. But the general trend is, is exactly where we expected. But I'd say equity markets uh, actually reacted much stronger perhaps in the first half of this year than, than we had expected. You know, obviously it's a, that's a positive, um, you know, with the uh, SBTSX uh, returning just over 17% uh, for the first six months of the year, uh, the SP 500, uh, 15% in U S dollar terms, 12% in Canadian dollar terms internationally wasn't as strong. Uh, they had a very strong first quarter led by emerging markets that pulled back a bit on the, um, uh, the second quarter, uh, but still very strong. Uh, Europe, uh, just over 12% in U.S. dollar terms, 9% Canadian dollar terms. Internationally, just shy of 10% um, um, in um, U.S. dollar terms. Emerging markets, the, the laggard, I'd say, for the first six months, but actually one of the leaders in the first quarter of the year. So um, for emerging markets, it's been kind of a tale of two quarters. But I don't think anybody could be very disappointed um, with the way the equity markets have, have performed year to date, coming off a very strong rally um, from the bottom of March 23rd of, of last year. Now, I think the question we've received, and we received it for, for a few months now, I'd say, is, is that it? You know, have, have we exhausted all our returns in the first part of the, uh, the year? Um, and there's nothing left. So should we just, you know, pack up and go home, sell out and go to cash? Um, and I think that's important to understand the environment. And I think, as you said, with the economic environment improving, you know, and the uh, labor market improving, consumption and pent-up demand is still there in the U.S., still there in Canada. There's still a, a lot of slack to work through. There's a lot of backlogs to work through. Um, there still is that that movement to strong earnings growth. And what I've been characterizing this this environment is, is the handoff from recovery to normalization. Um, and in normalization, what you see is um, still positive equity markets, but perhaps a little bit less strong than you do in the, in the first part of the recovery phase uh, post-recession. And I think what we need to do as, as investors, perhaps, is just readjust our expectations a little bit lower. Still, equities are favored over other asset classes, um, but just understand that perhaps you're not going to get the same type of return as you did in the you know in the early stages of the recovery you know late last year or last half of last year and the first half of this year and that's that's very typical I mean, when we look at the path of equity markets following a recession and, and recovery through a bear market you tend to get three stages you have the bear market so the drop we had that 34 percent last um, February and March you get the immediate recovery you know the, the very very strong rally and we had that we can argue whether that's still going on, but then you transition into a period still positive returns, but momentum starts to slow, returns start to moderate as you shift from a valuation-driven market to an earnings-driven market. And I think that's what we're moving into. We weren't surprised at the returns in the first half of the year. This is the work that we did in the fourth quarter. It says, you know what, this is a very strong environment for equities. And guess what? Just about all equity markets do well in this environment. Large cap, small cap, value growth, it seems to be very strong environment for all equities. Both personally and professionally, I am surprised 
uh, somewhat lackluster performance comparatively in the emerging markets, especially given the very, very strong fundamentals that we see there. But, you know, as you said, Kev, I don't think anyone should be disappointed. The playbook, I guess, or the, the path, and, and we've said this in the past, you know, we, we typically look at the history and it, it, it doesn't always repeat, but does rhyme. And looking at this environment coming out of recession, regarding, regardless of, of why you had a recession, it doesn't matter what happens. But following recessions, the markets till we play out the exact same way, you know, uh, to some degree, uh, there, there's it repeats itself. And I think it's important to understand that and, and identify again what environment you're in. You know, people talk about uh, this is the late 90s, early 2000s, whereas we'd say it's more like the early 90s than the early aughts um, because you're coming out of recession, valuation leads recovery, leads the markets, there's a handoff to earnings growth. Markets are still positive. The equity markets still do well. Um, and you know, you just have to readjust your expectations and understand that you can't keep generating these outsized returns forever. There's got to be a, a pause in the, in, the, in the playbook at some point. The first question we always ask ourselves is, what are the odds of a recession over the next 12 months? And I think we all agree that the odds are quite low, less than 10%. So from a starting point, even that $1 I have invested today, yeah, we're up mid-teens. Uh, but history has indicated that we're, there's still some juice for the rest of the year for that return. When you look at calendar year returns, that nearly 60% of the time, they're greater than 10%. And actually 35% of the time, they're greater than 20%. So yeah, despite being up mid-teens, uh, history suggests that there is still some returns left. We know historically September, October are more volatile. Uh, we'll talk about it in terms of the backdrop, but the backdrop does present itself where you have elevated valuations, concerns about growth, uh, peak earnings, peak growth. That it, has, it does set up the environment where you could get a correction at some point over the next couple of months. And that actually excites me because for that new dollar invested, um, that allows me to get a you know, more juice out of that return. So there will be downside, I think, at some point over the next couple of months, when and why it happens, who knows. But uh, knowing this, that the odds of a recession are low, it is quite exciting, actually, over the next couple of months for those that have uh, investable assets or cash on the sidelines, or maybe have overweighted fixed income and can use that fixed income as their ammunition to buy uh, equities during a sell-off. History has shown us that we have a high probability, I think it's roughly 80% of a 10% or more correction during a calendar year. And the average pullback is over 14%. But three quarters of the time, the calendar year ends up positive still. Uh, and the important part, as you said, Machen, is, is let's ask the first question, what is the environment? You know, What's the likelihood of recession? If we do get a correction in this environment where, you know, I think it's it's not even arguable that, that uh, we're in a, in a positive environment, things are getting incrementally better, not incrementally worse. Should we get a, you know that pullback, that market correction, a little bit more volatility? Uh, I think it, it makes sense to embrace that that opportunity to add um, to equities and, and add in the in the good environments where the quality businesses should be the ones that lead going forward. Now we can't we can't end the conversation on on equities without talking about valuation. We have to address valuation because this is something that We've discussed as a team, there are numerous articles about it talking about the high valuation within the equity market, in particular, the U.S. equity market and what it might mean. So I'll start by saying the work that we've done 
says that over the short term, valuation is a terrible indicator of performance, meaning over a one year forward period, high valuation, low valuation, fair valuation tells us nothing about what the market is likely to do. Over the long term, high valuation does tend to lead to weaker 10-year annualized returns as low valuation tends to lead to higher 10-year annualized returns, but it's not consistent. It's very, very lumpy. We're not going to see, for example, 2% returns every year over the next 10 years. It's gonna be very lumpy. And, and in fact, when you dig a little bit deeper into the data, what you see is that the weaker 10-year returns tend to be driven by one-time events, a recession, you know, a bear market. And, and the timing, you know, the start date and the end date and the performance over that period is very dependent on when that recession falls. For example, you know, obviously at the end of a recession, valuation tends to be uh, much lower or at the end of a bear market, valuation is much lower. So, you know, your 10-year forecast looks good. Well, because the recession might be much later However, that said, I don't think we can just completely ignore valuation. Now, we've talked about it as a team saying, look, in the context of a strong earnings environment, earnings growth environment, valuation will moderate naturally or in an orderly fashion. But if we don't get that, that's when you can get these one-time shocks to the market to bring value back in line with where it should be. So. I'm holding out right now. Our thesis is that over the course of the next two to three quarters, valuation is going to moderate, meaning where we've priced in the earnings gains already. So as they become realized, the market is going to move up by less than earnings growth and we'll get the PE multiple coming down. But you know, we do have to be aware that potentially one of those triggers for a correction can be a valuation adjustment. Well, I think when you, when you have valuation elevated, that's where the... Um, you know, you're on that thin ice mentality where it's it's a bigger risk of that short term correction. Um, but I said, uh, you know, we want to embrace that. Um, the interesting thing is you you talk about the the long term annualized returns and and how it's it's really just usually a, a temporary shocks that drive the longer term annualized returns. So bear markets or recessions, and I think that's why you don't invest for you know ten years and just close your eyes, right? You're constantly readjusting given the the shorter term. Uh, environment and and I'll go back and say, this is a pretty positive environment. There there doesn't seem to be many obvious risks out there for uh, correction to lead to one of those bear markets. So Makan, from your vantage point, from what you see, and we're going to go around table to, and I'm I'm curious if we're all going to come up with the same answer. But uh, your most attractive area within the equity markets, whether it be cap size or geography, where do you see? Uh, some of the most attractive opportunities. What's my time horizon? Uh, I'll give you between one um, uh, and no more than three years. And I'm investing today, July 15th. Yes. So, and then I'm just making it complicated. That's why. But because these are questions you have to ask yourself, right? Like it's just not, oh, I'm out here now. Am I assuming my asset allocation sure. is what our model portfolio is or a typical Canadian investor? I Let's keep it really simple. You have money to put in the market. Where does it go? 
Okay, well, that's not how it works. Just best return, but... Uh, okay, so I'm going to invest in the Kazakhstan stock market. Uh, <laughs> either plus 60% or minus 30 So, um, <laughs> you know what? I think when I look at our model portfolio and I look at uh, just per my personal investments, I think over the next three years I'll pick is I think when you look at risk-adjusted returns, I'm quite positive on emerging markets. I know, and Kev highlighted, uh, they had a great first quarter and then second quarter for a whole host of reasons, stronger US dollar, uh, crackdown on Chinese tech firms, uh, resurgence of the virus, global growth or peak growth. So you have seen that they have underperformed uh, the other parts of the world. But when I look over the next three years, when you factor in the fundamentals of that area, when you factor in earnings growth, and then you add in that last ingredient, which is valuations, which is historically at a discount, not only to itself, but also relative to the US. And the reason I bring that up is when we're making a decision, um, we don't hold cash, so we're always taking it from somewhere. So I'm going to assume that if I were going to be adding to EM equities, I probably would be taking out of US equities given what we hold in us equities so long story short it's em we have like if you've been in the industry long enough and you follow global uh, asset classes the em story is very cyclical it's a roller coaster right so i feel that we've just come gone through the past month month and a half two months of the downdraft and uh, i think historically when you look at it then uh, when you're buying at these levels after a sell-off you tend to do uh, quite positive in the emerging market. So I think uh, long <laughs> long story short, EM equities over the next three years. That is a very, very long-winded way of getting around to it. So um, Kevin, yours. I tend to agree with Mock on, um, especially given given the, the stars that are aligning right now, I would say, you know, if I was to invest today and close my eyes for the next three years, I have a lot of confidence in emerging markets, specifically uh, Asia. Um, you know that's very positive. At the same time, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't bet against the U.S. Uh, you know they they can just they seem to be surprising, and every time you think that they're going to underperform, they find a way to uh, to perform well. Uh, but yeah, I, I think if I had to choose one, you know, feet to the fire, uh, I think right now uh, things line up really well for uh, emerging Asia. Well, the U.S. story they kept the U.S. is nice, right? Like, why do we invest in the U.S.? You invest in the U.S. because of a whole host of reasons, but one of them being diversification. It's a broad index and it's very deep. So, what we saw over the last year, we saw different themes, right? We saw different styles of uh, outperforming. First half of last year was growth, and then the baton was passed on from growth to value. Well, in the U.S., you have exposure to both. So if growth's not working and value is, you have exposure to that. Uh, cyclical versus non-cyclicals, you have exposure to both. Whereas Canada is more of a cyclical story. So uh, you're right, Kev. Like it's you can it's betting against the U.S. has made fools of many investors. And I think I think uh, you have something there. Absolutely. I would also add, you know, given broad-based valuation um, within the U.S. I, I think it's also an opportunity to embrace the active management side. And, and I think this is a right area for, for stock picking. And I think that's where, that's how you're to succeed is picking the right businesses, the right companies at the right valuations today over the next three years. I'm going to, I'm going to lean more on mock on side in terms of the emerging markets. I mean, Kevin, I know you talked about Asia 
um, but don't bet against the U.S. I'm actually, I, while I'm not betting against the U.S., I'm betting in favor of some other areas. I think valuation does matter. And I think the U.S. is going to go through a period of, let's call it the great moderation of valuation, um, get to where the rest of the world is. Um, and and I think that's, that's going to come at a cost. And I think it's going to be uh, a little bit of underperformance relative to some other areas of the world over the course of the next three years. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be you know this year or not. And I don't think it's going to result in a negative return. But I'm going to lean on, on the side of the emerging markets and say, given the valuation and given the earnings potential and the economic growth potential, you know, this, is, uh, this is where I, am, I would consider increasing or contributing to uh, with that view of over the next one to three years. But you know what? Look, we'll, we'll come back in a year, in a year's time, two years' time, three years' time. We've got this recorded now, so we'll see where we end up. I want to shift to uh, commodities because this is an area that's been really interesting, um, I think, in terms of just the gains in commodities. And this is actually going to lead into the fixed income discussion. But let me just highlight a few things here. So obviously we've seen commodity prices increase over 2020, but I also looked at it, and not only did they increase year to date, they've increased over the last one year, but I think more importantly, if we discount 2020 and go back to 2019, because I think that sets up a better picture. If 2019 was a normal environment, then where are we today comparatively to that normal environment. And so here's how it works out. Oil. Oil prices, uh, as I look today, were 73, or sorry, as at the end of June, rather, uh, price per barrel of oil for West Texas Intermediate was $73.47 US versus $58.47 year to date. But if we look at the two-year, oil prices are up 25% over, over the last two years, 51% year to date. Copper prices up 22% year to date, up 58% over the last two years. Nickel prices, up 9.8% year to date, up 44% over the last two years. Not only have we seen commodity prices climb back to levels that we had in 2019, but they've surpassed that. And it's not just you know these. Now, now you can argue with oil and copper and nickel saying, well, you know what, the price is higher because of supply disruptions due to COVID shutdowns and mines and rigs and so on. And I'll give you that. Although I do think there's there's higher demand today than what we saw in 2019, but it gets really interesting when we start to look at soft commodities, agricultural commodities. Corn, for example, year to date up 35%. The two year gain in the price of corn, 42%. Here's the really interesting thing. The five year production of corn hasn't changed that much. So it's not like you saw farmers during COVID saying, well, you know what, COVID's on, let's stop producing corn. They continue to produce corn, and yet the price is up 42% over where we were in 2019. Now, there are reasons for that, and I'll get into it in just a little bit. But if we then look at soybeans, year-to-date soybeans are up 26%, two years, 47%. Coffee, up 19% year-to-date over the last two years, coffee prices are up 19%. And I, I highlight this because I think this reflects 
the inflationary environment created by all the monetary stimulus by the Federal Reserve, by the Bank of Canada and other central banks around the world. You put money into the system, you put a lot of money into the system, that money can chase commodities, goods, whatever it is, and push up the price of those goods beyond just demand. Now corn, there are other reasons why corn is, is up. Uh, there are concerns about the, um, the yield in Brazil that the Brazilian second annual uh, crop of corn might come in short and China demand for livestock feed is, is booming. So that could be some reasons why corn is up, but it doesn't explain coffee. For example, well coffee where consumption for, now the way they look at the coffee year, this is by the, um, what is it, the International Coffee Organization they have their year uh, starting in October, it goes October to October. And so when they look at the 2021 year, they're actually estimating 167.2 million bags of coffee, which is below where we were in 2019, and yet the price is 19% higher. So this is an interesting dynamic where there's demand inflation, there's supply inflation, and there's monetary inflation. And anyone that's done any lumber project this year knows how lumber prices have jumped. Now they've come back down, they've moderated. Anyone that fills up your, your car with a tank of gas can see how expensive gas prices have come in the last couple of months. Going grocery shopping, you can see how expensive groceries are or how smaller packaging has become. All this is inflationary. Those that bought oil at the beginning of the year or last year have done very well. Those that have bought pretty much any commodity, uh, commodity index or, or commodity related um, security, I would say in large part have done well. Um, but it also just to me, this highlights what we talked about at the beginning of the year, which was an accelerating inflationary environment. And we're seeing it manifest itself at the very least through commodity prices, not just energy commodities, base metals, uh, but also the soft commodities that might be less impacted by supply and demand fundamentals uh, or disruptions because of COVID. Uh, and I think it's, it's just something very interesting to note that this is inflation that's perhaps more driven by money supply than by uh, just economic growth. You mentioned commodities, uh, especially corn, and, and I, would, I would say we, we touched about the um, demographic changes in Asia and the actual, as the middle class gets richer in Asia um, or accumulates more, more wealth, um, they're actually eating more protein. Um, and we know that the, the amount of corn to feed livestock is so, is so large, as you said, the Asia um, imports is in increasing. Um, and that's definitely a, a cause for that. Same with soybeans. Um, copper is one that's interesting. And, and recently um, I was looking at something on copper and the amount of copper that's going to be needed um, as uh, the world transitions toward cleaner energy and the amount of uh, copper that's required um, in essentially electrifying that clean energy. Um, it, it's quite interesting that demand is actually going to increase and supply over the last uh, how many years uh, has actually uh, started to decline as new mines have not come under on, uh, on production. So there could be a supply demand um, deficit um, earlier than expected in terms of copper. So that again, even X base effects from COVID or, you know, you, you said you use the two years to kind of wipe that that um, 
impact of COVID out, some of these uh, commodities are going to remain elevated for quite some time, uh, perhaps due to stimulus and, and, as you said, the money supply, especially for construction materials, uh, but also uh, on, on hard commodities through just the, the nature of the changing landscape of uh, the global economic uh, and energy environment. When I look at the commodity complex, I think most for those indices that are levered to commodities have done quite well in the first half of the year, the, probably the majority or a material amount of those gains have already been baked in. Said differently, I don't think commodities go up materially higher from these levels. Like, are we talking about oil at 100? Probably not. So I think for those investors that are have exposure to those indices, uh, would I sell? No, but would I add a new dollar? For me, I would be kind of cautious in terms of those indices or those companies that are leveraged to commodities going forward. Uh, if we get a sell-off, that's another question. But when I look at it from an inflation perspective, do I believe that commodities are going to fall back materially to actually have an impact on inflation the other way around? And you've read our stuff, you've heard us enough that we are obviously in the other in the camp of inflation is enduring. So, and I think one of the factors behind that is yes, lumber prices have come down from elevated levels, but they're still quite high relative to the three-year average. You can go across the spectrum. So I think commodity prices in general will help uh, our thesis in terms of inflation continuing to be more enduring than transitory. So this leads into the conversation on fixed income because this is probably the most contentious, debated, uh, differing, you know, kind of views out there around fixed income and inflation. Um, and it's one that I think that many investors perhaps got wrong earlier in the year. You know, maybe they feel vindicated by the change in, in yields over the last couple of weeks. But I think it, it's really interesting to, to discuss and debate where we're headed. But Mark, before we get too far into that, Mark, why don't you give us the quick summary on fixed income, where we stand as of uh, first half of the year? When you look at the environment for fixed income for 2021, it's really a tale of two quarters. So when you look at it, there was a, uh, a distinct theme in Q1, and that was the reopening theme, the reflation theme. And in that environment, when you look at it, and I'm just going to use the U.S. 10-year Treasury as a proxy, that you saw the 10-year Treasury rise from roughly 90 basis points to end the first quarter on March 31st at roughly 1.75%. And funny enough, the end of the first quarter was really the peak in the 10-year Treasury. The Q2 theme was different. It wasn't reflation. It wasn't the reopening. It was peak reopening. It was the uh, concern that inflation had peaked based on growth. And you saw the 10-year Treasury fall from that 1.75 to end the quarter roughly 1.4. And then since then, we've dropped to 1.33. Now, when you look at Q1 on that reflation trade, the term structure, you saw a steepening of the yield curve as those expectations were... The short end was anchored because the Fed wasn't raising rates, uh, but the long end, you saw rates increase. Again, based on this reopening, it's going to drive inflation. 
and then flip to the second quarter where actually we started seeing a flattening of the yield curve where two things happened. The first thing is markets pushed the expectations of the Fed raising rates, which was initially uh, some point in 2023 was moved forward. And the market started pricing in actually a, a Fed rate hike in the second half of 2022. So you saw the front end increase, but also on the back end, again, going back to the peak reflation or peak growth, you saw inflation expectations, you saw growth expectations on the long end decrease, which had long end yields come down. From an asset class perspective, it actually followed it exactly that. So in the first quarter, uh, it was really hard to hide. There was only two areas of fixed income that you could you could have hid and you would have been positive. One would have been high yield, the other one was floating rate. Now, fast forward to Q2, you saw a little bit of a different uh, dynamic. Emerging market bonds actually were the best, best performer. Uh, some of that was the US dollar uh, weakening, which was uh, important for that asset class. But when you look at it, other aspects too was uh, U.S. Treasury did well, high yield continued to do well. Now, when you look at, when you combine these two halves together, uh, or not two halves, two quarters together into the first half, uh, still only two asset classes that were positive in the first half of the year, high yield and floating rate, followed by short-term bond. Uh, leading the pack on the negative side has continued to be Canadian government bonds, global bonds, uh, really anything Canadian fixed income related has been very uh, a bad performer in the first half. So that was the theme and that was the story in the first half of the year was really defined by two quarters. And you've heard us say, I've said this a gazillion times, we think COVID is going to be a two step forward, one step back. So Q1 was that two steps forward. And then Q2 was the one step back and we're kind of going through it again. Now our team believes we will go back to that two step forward. So would it be beyond me to see this very same dynamic unfold for the second half of the year that we saw in Q1? Uh, probably not. I actually would say the odds are probably in that favor. For those investors that are still concerned about inflation, that we're not provided the opportunity or we're maybe not quick enough to act on it for whatever reason in the first quarter, have now a new opportunity to shorten the duration of their portfolio. Maybe go into... If you have little high yield, maybe go into a little bit more high yield or credit, uh, given where yields are today. And I think we've always talked about this, regardless of the short term moves. When it comes to fixed income, we always ask ourselves and when it comes to equities, too, is what's the risk of being wrong? So if you're positioned with a shorter duration and yields have fallen like they have over the past quarter, you may gain a little bit on your fixed income investments. But if you're positioned with a longer duration and yields rise, then you're at risk of having a negative return. So look at where we are today with the 10-year at 1.35. And look at the plus minuses or the pros and cons of yield moves and how that may impact your fixed income portion of your asset allocation. Now, our view, and you said, we think that inflation is going to be enduring. Use this opportunity from our point of view to maybe shorten that duration, maybe go into credit from sovereigns. The inflation theme will come back again, we believe. So we have the team view that inflation is going to be a little bit more persistent. And the level of inflation that we're talking about, say, for example, between now and the end of the year, so the back half of 2021 on a year over year basis, each in monthly inflation print 
is likely to come in, I would say between say three and a half and four and a half percent. And that's just because of the way the first half of the year has in inflation on a month over month basis has come in. So inflation is going to be more persistent. Bond yields, as you said, you know, tail of, of two quarters, first quarter yields shot up 80 basis points through the second quarter. They, they reverted by say 25 basis points or so, um, which in a way could be expected. And that falls, I think, entirely in line with your two steps forward. Okay, you go 80 basis points up and maybe you come back you know, about 40 basis points to where we are today. Yes, but you're still ahead of where we were at the start of the year. And where are we going, right? So if inflation is going to be more persistent, then we're headed towards a period of, of a continued rising rate environment. Where do we end up? I still believe that by the end of the year, we're probably going to be close to 2%, if not 2%. And, and through 2022, we're even going to exceed that. But this is such a point that is debated out there. It is, it is a, I would argue, a non-consensus view. Consensus is that no, yields are going to stay low for various reasons. Um, inflation is going to be transitory for, for base effects, which I, I, I don't think people actually understand base effects because all the base effects of, of the you know, inflation are behind us now. Investors are running the risk of, of missing the signals that, yeah, you know, in our opinion, that rates are headed higher and, and bond returns um, may be more lackluster over the course of the next 12 months as they've been year to date. I think this is the most underappreciated and perhaps most misunderstood aspect to the market today. The, the biggest misunderstanding is, again, what does you know, the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, mean by transitory? You know, no one's defining that. And I don't think inflation returns back to pre-COVID uh, decade average of 1.7%. Even if we could all agree that it's going to be higher from that. So even if we say 2% above the Fed's target. 2% inflation with a 135 10-year treasury yield is still negative yielding you know, real yields. Who's going to accept that? Eventually, you're going to return to positive yields. History has shown that negative yields, uh, which is, you know, that your 10-year uh, yield minus CPI, uh, consumer price index, doesn't last very long. Eventually, the, the market participants require a positive uh, yield over the rate of inflation. So I think Makan hit it really the right way, is where are the risks? Even if rates stay where they are for the next three months, you're not losing much by shortening duration, you know, and that and that's the the key argument is, is where are the opportunities and especially where are the risks, and I think if you really sat down with anybody who's in the transitory yield stay where they are for a while, it's hard for them to argue that yields go down from here and remain lower um, and don't uh, start to move higher and, and that's that's where the risks lie. I think it's it's all defining uh, level and time frame, um, and when you walk through things, it, it it's not as probably as difficult to understand as probably some may think. It becomes the path of least resistance in a way um, to what you said and what Makan said is you always have to be aware of the downside risk. What if we're wrong? Right? And I, I stress this to anyone evaluating any investment. Ask yourself, what if you're wrong? And we've done this on the fixed income side. If you are long duration and you're wrong, it could result in, in some meaningful losses in, in 
in the context of fixed income. If you are short duration and you're wrong, it's a missed opportunity, but it's, it's not necessarily a loss. And, and what if you're right though? Like that's the other thing, you know, if you're right and you're short duration, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, my return is going to be in the very low single digits. If I'm right and you're long duration today, I mean, I guess you have to ask yourself, where do you think yields are going? And, and this begs the question saying, well, do you think that a recession is coming? And if, if that's the case, then uh, I struggle to see any evidence that supports that over the course of the next 12 months. You can make money, but the risk reward is, is really wide. I mean, the, the skew is to the downside. So in, in the context of asset allocation, I think this is a good way to wrap it up too. When we think about all of this, where we've come in the first half of the year and where we're yet to go in the back half of the year and into 2022, from the fixed income perspective, our model portfolio remains underweight fixed income with an overweight to equities. Within fixed income, we continue to favor short duration, we continue to favor high yield, emerging market debt, investment grade corporate debt, areas that are going to be less sensitive to a rising interest rate environment. On the equity side, it's still a really, in our view, an attractive, really attractive environment for equities. Valuation, I firmly believe, will moderate uh, through a strengthening earnings environment. Uh, but the earnings growth looks, looks very strong through the remainder of the year, most areas around the world. The equity opportunity looks attractive most areas around the world. Uh, and this is where we want to be overweight. Correction could happen, but I think we all agree that we would take advantage of that in the context of, of a still very strong economic recovery. You know, we've shifted from recovery to, to expansion, and this expansion could go on for quite some time yet. So, yeah, I, I, I just finished a presentation where the last slide on the presentation is summer is when laziness becomes respectable. And I think that's a good kind of uh, description for our model portfolio where we're not doing anything. Here's another quarter where we're not doing anything because we're very happy with it, very happy with the positioning. If things continue to play out as our research would indicate, it being overweight equities, underweight fixed income is the right position through the remainder of this year. Any final thoughts? If there's a less accommodative US Federal Reserve peak in economic growth, heightened valuation and suggests choppy markets. But I think we also have to be maybe very cognizant of the fact that there's a historic amount of cash on the sidelines that is just itching to find its way back into the markets. And that could make any pullback kind of fleeting in the sense. We had a mini pullback in May and then we saw that cash come off the sidelines. And not to say that that's going to be the case this time around. But again, I think that uh, if you had to ask me the odds of a pullback versus a correction or bear market, I might actually lean towards a pullback. And I guess when it comes to this stuff, who really knows? But I think just given the amount of cash on the sidelines and just a general positive environment, like from an economic perspective, that if we were to see a sell-off, it would be it would most likely be very fleeting. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that, Mark. On um, I, my final thought, really, is about. Um... The fixed income market was, was funny. That's I was working on the U.S. equity or the equity market uh, commentary, but it's interesting that the current 
environment for um, longer duration yields, tenure treasury yields. There's there's certain dynamics that are working in the fixed income market. They're keeping them uh, a little bit lower than perhaps uh, the rest of the environment would suggest. Um, and should that these idiosyncrasies of, of fixing in markets or some of the dynamics they're working start to abate. Again, that um, pressure on the downside abates and the market will quickly snap back higher. Um, and I think that's also another risk to understand that, you know, perhaps fixed income is, is probably an environment that is, is much more difficult to understand than equities. Uh, there's a lot more little nuances. Um, and even then, that's why it makes sense to probably entrust uh fixed income with uh, seasoned professionals that have the flexibility to move where they need to, um, to generate better returns and perhaps uh, protect on the downside. So in closing, I'll, I'll just offer these final thoughts. I think if I had to describe the back half of 2021, I'm going to describe it this way, more of the same. I think that's, that's what we're likely to see through the remainder of the year, more of the same in terms of fixed income, higher, but you know, it, it's the your words mock on two steps forward, one step back that we could see in terms of bond yields, more of the same in terms of inflationary pressures being a little bit more persistent and more of the same in terms of a stronger earnings environment and I think attractive equity returns. Again, you know, with that, with the asterisk right there saying you corrections could happen. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I think it's almost it's almost getting to be boring, to be honest with you, gentlemen. Yeah, in terms of describing it, because it's like, well, we laid this out at the beginning of the year, and yep, check, check, check. Here we go. We're we're moving on in in pretty much the direction that we thought. Um, the day to day moves, you know, can can swing one way or the other. But over the course of the first half of the year, nothing has surprised me. Um, and and I expect uh, similar results when we discuss the full year uh, in early January of 2022. What I am looking forward to is the work that we're going to do over the next six months to identify the investment opportunities and the landscape and perhaps you know what we should be considering in our portfolios for that 2020U period uh, that I do think is going to be different than 2021. But not in a negative way, just in a, in a more nuanced way in terms of asset allocation positioning. So with that, on behalf of Kevin Hedlund and Makan Nia, this is Philip Peterson. Uh, thank you for listening to Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede know-your-client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.